Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When we think of the Second World War in the United States... We think back to Pearl Harbor in December 41 and that defining moment that brought the United States together to fight what Roosevelt called this absolute war. A war that would be a total war that would need the US victory to ensure its survival. But as things progressed through to 1942, as with any crisis, there were internal fractures in the US, whether they be economic or political. Rumours were rife that the Europeans and the Russians were not pulling their weight and fighting. They were hoping the US would come into the war. And that had its own internal tensions, with a number of people wondering whether or not Roosevelt was doing the right thing. We've got Tracy Campbell on the podcast to take us through that year, step by step, month by month. He's got a new book out, 1942, The Year of Peril. I highly recommend it. In fact, I highly recommend this episode. Tracy's great. And this history has a weird way of identifying with us now as we go through our own period of international crisis and our own divisions in society. I think we can look back to 1942 for some quite, well, disturbing parallels and some lessons and some takeaways. So here he is, Tracy Campbell on 1942. Hi Tracy, welcome to the Warfare Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing fine. How are you in Denmark? I'm good. I'm good. There is intermittent sunshine for the first time in months, so I'm pretty happy about that. I might even get a slight tan. Where are you speaking to us from? From Lexington, Kentucky. It's in the middle of the state of Kentucky, state of about four and a half million. It's where the University of Kentucky is located, and we have no problem with sun. It's hot and humid and balmy here. <laughs> well, lucky, lucky you, I guess, although balmy doesn't sound that good. Yeah. Yeah. The one thing I know about Kentucky in terms of warfare, didn't you have numerous airfields there where you trained all the USAF fighters and bomber pilots during that period? Well, there's two major military bases here. There was Fort Campbell and there's Fort Knox. And Fort Knox, of course, is where the gold is allegedly held there. Of course, the rumor is it's empty and it's all gone to people all around the world. Maybe somebody's keeping it there in Denmark for us, but... Uh, Kentucky, and, and certainly around this part of the country, there were a lot of military preps, there's no doubt. 
Well, it's the Second World War that we're talking about today, and especially the year 1942 in the American context. But before we dive into 1942, we have to talk about December 1941 and Pearl Harbor. So how did this surprise attack on the US impact the American morale and the willing to join the war? There's never been a moment quite like it, certainly in the 20th century in the United States. I mean, Lincoln back in the 1850s had said that it would be a thousand years before the United States would ever have to worry about armies like Napoleon's crossing the oceans because we seemed impervious to any kind of attack that we were protected by these vast oceans and suddenly and the things that we would hear about in London or in other parts of Europe that's happening somewhere else and then suddenly to find out that it wasn't happening in the continental United States, but still the American naval base at Pearl Harbor was attacked. And suddenly the notion that these oceans aren't protecting us, that things from the sky can harm us, produced a certain trauma that's about the only thing that's probably close to it would have been 9-11, in which we're caught completely unprepared a surprise attack, the, the death, the carnage, but also just the psychological toll that we're vulnerable in ways we didn't really expect or weren't expecting. And so throughout the United States, it's not just the fact that Pearl Harbor was attacked, but like we felt 9-11, who's next? Is it going to be Los Angeles, Seattle, New York, or Washington on the East Coast? And so you start seeing insurance policies being sold to protect people against enemy attack as far inland as Kansas City or Chicago or Iowa. And so that's kind of the hard thing to get at for people to think about just the trauma of what's that sound I'm hearing now and what could it bring? There's this photograph that I couldn't put in the book of an air raid shelter in the middle of a field in Wyoming. And it was where the locals could go in case the enemy attacked out truly in the middle of nowhere. But that kind of connotes probably better than anything I can say, just the real fear that people felt in the United States now that the war had truly come to this part of the world. That's astonishing. So there was a pervasive fear that was deeply entrenched into the American people. But I've got to ask, was this not a little bit deliberate? I think back to President Roosevelt's remarks in December 41. We are in this war. We are all in it all the way. Every single man, woman and child is a partner in the most tremendous undertaking of our American history. Is it not part of, well, you have to make your population a little bit fearful to make sure that they're all working towards the war effort? Right. I mean, one of the magical things about Roosevelt was how he managed to bring so many people to feel like they were a part of something. Now, that doesn't mean everybody. I mean, part of the book is about this myth of unity. Moments of trauma, moments of stress don't often bring us together. They can drive us apart, particularly racially, particularly ethnically. But Roosevelt still managed to make sure that everybody felt they were part of it in some way or another. He called it equality of sacrifice. That it just wouldn't be the troops who would be leaving for Asia or Europe. You might be leaving your home to then work in a war industry or to buy a war bond. Or a moment of genius when he has children going around the country collecting scrap rubber. And if you talk to anyone who was alive at the time, they, they'll say, Oh, yeah, I remember that weekend. I went in the attic and I found some rubber. 
and would take it to a local gas station to get a penny a pound, but still they felt part of something. And even when it came to taxation, he wanted to make sure that there would be no sense that somebody was getting away with this or actually capitalizing on it. So that was part of it. But the fear, I think, came naturally. And I started this book not thinking about the war. I was thinking about my own fear in 2008, 2009, watching the world economy at the brink of, you know, for those of us who've studied the Great Depression, it was not something that made us feel good. I remember feeling this pit in my stomach. I went to a ball game for one of my sons, and I remember just looking around the auditorium thinking, do you all understand what could happen here soon? The economy truly dries up. And so I started writing this book, James, like, you know, like we think of as historians. There was going to be a chapter about the economy. There's going to be a chapter about war preparation, about politics, the election. And it just was lifeless and bloodless. And it had no sense of the trauma I was reading about in the sources, particularly in the weeks after Pearl Harbor, which the fear is, to be quite blunt, we can lose this war. Or is the best case scenario that we decide the war like we do in most other cases with Hitler and across the table and a negotiation table to decide on a treaty to end this war? Which land will he get? You know, what compromises will we make? So you're seeing whether it's national periodicals or newspapers or local, that there was the fear. We're not just in this together. We're in what Roosevelt called the war for survival. Well, not World War II, that would come later, but this was our survivals on the line. And to me, that's one of those crucial moments. It's like a Petri dish. If you really want to see a society in its clearest form, put it under its greatest stress and see what comes to the surface. And you can really understand a society in ways that you don't in other cases. Was this idea of total war, of absolute victory, of survival, something that Roosevelt pushed from very early on? Was this a part of the State of the Union in January 42? Well, we know about the speech on December 8th that we've all probably seen or heard many times. You know, yesterday, December 7th, the date which we live in infamy. The most important speech, though, the one that laid out exactly how the United States was going to wage this war, what we were thinking about, came the next month in January, in which he went back to Capitol Hill to give the State of the Union. And you can go on YouTube and not only see it, but listen to it. And it is a breathtaking half hour. You can hear gasps in the audience when he mentions how much we're going to spend. We're going to build 125,000 planes next year, 60,000 this year, 125,000 next year. And you can hear audible gasps in the room. And yes, at that moment, he's saying this is... You mentioned some of the things he'd said before about the most tremendous undertaking. This is bigger than anything we've ever done. And this failure or you know, even halfway victory of some kind of medium way like so many other wars is not acceptable under these circumstances that we are in a fight for survival. If we lose, we could return to the dark ages. His language is really clear from the beginning. This isn't, say, like Vietnam, let's escalate it as you know, the circumstances warrant victories around the corner. This, you see a very different language, a very different posture coming from not just the president, but from military leaders who are constantly talking about, we are in trouble at this point. 
So how does this start to play out in the first months of 42? Take us through February and March. Is this something which gets off to a good start, this mass mobilization? No. One of the themes of 42 that you just see throughout the spring and the summer is frustration. Why aren't we doing something? Why don't we open the paper to see when we've made that first attack somehow on Hitler's forces or on the Japanese? And so week after week, month after month, there is frustration really more than anything else. To me, though, of course, Pearl Harbor happens in early December. But as you go through the year, particularly in February, I remember there was this Time magazine saying last week was the worst week of the century, maybe of all time. And so you're thinking... What happened? You know, what would happen to make this the worst week? Well, there was a ship in the New York Harbor, the Normandy, that had tipped over on its side. But the visible image of this was kind of like the final straw. And I kept looking for what else has happened here. Now, there were some reports of what was happening in some places of Europe where the final solution is underway. But by January and February, there's not a sense of, man, they have asked for it, they're going to get it. There's a sense that this hasn't turned the corner yet. And so it really isn't until April with Doolittle's raid that the kind of psychological turn occurs. It militarily didn't have much impact, but the notion that we had actually attacked you know, the island of Japan in some way, be it small or large, was like, yeah, down the road they're going to get it. But in Europe, the frustration kept building because mobilization doesn't happen overnight. And the building of 60,000 planes doesn't happen simply because you retool factories. It takes many months and a great deal of effort. You know, one of the things we do as historians I worry about is that we read history backward. We know how things are going to wind up. But when you put yourself in the moment, it's a very different viewpoint. Imagine one day we'll write about COVID and say, well, we knew we'd have vaccines and we'd get back on the road in time. But as we live through it, say last spring and last summer, and this particular vaccine didn't quite work out, you wonder, is it ever going to go back? And so I think it's helpful to get back inside those moments to try and experience it, to see the raw, what real fear and what real national, if not international trauma really feels like. And you don't know when it's going to end, of course, when you're caught in the middle of these international crises, but you read the news and you hold on to those glimmers of hope. So you can refer back to COVID and you think, oh, there were those successful tests with Oxford AstraZeneca or with the Pfizer and the hope that perhaps there's going to be some victories in this as we move forwards. And I can draw some parallels there, I guess, with the way in which the British fight during 1940 and 41 was being represented, especially back in the United state, that blitz spirit, the victory in the Battle of Britain. Are these things that were used as, I don't know, a a bit of PR back to the US to show that there's some hope there? No doubt there was. But one of the things I wasn't expecting with this book was to start delving into rumor and misinformation. And part of the misinformation was that you all really weren't fighting. Oh, wow. Right? Not only was there this Jewish conspiracy to get us involved in the war, but that the Brits and our other allies weren't really doing their fair share. And that all they were doing was just getting us involved in the war so that we could then come and save the day. And what the United States government had to do was we sent out what were called rumor reporters who would listen in, whether they're taxi drivers or hairstylists, to see what are people saying 
And they would report this back to the Office of War Information. So I was in Washington, and they brought me this cart of like 36 boxes of rumor. And it was just fascinating to read region by region or state by state what people were saying to each other. So yeah, at least in official sense, what was happening in Great Britain provided some sense of hope. But what people were telling each other maybe wasn't quite so hopeful about what you all were really up about, right? Of course, the Russians were just, you know, it's hard to read anything about Stalingrad and get your arm around it to think that this... You want to talk, I don't know how to write about Stalingrad or how to try and understand it, this block by block, building by building horror story. But back home here in the United States, you know, the Russians aren't fighting. They're just looking for the first moment to arrive at a peace settlement. And then we're going to have to fight everybody's war. So just like with COVID and, you know, the vaccines have computer chips in them to, you know, for mind control, what people are telling each other is as important as what the president's saying or what government agencies are saying, sometimes even more so, sadly. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Susanna Lipscomb, and in my new podcast, Not Just the Tudors, I'll be talking about everything from Aztecs to witches, Belethgeth to Shakespeare, Mogul India to the Mayflower. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe to Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. (laughs) 
but this can be incredibly damaging because there are massive economic measures being put in place by the Roosevelt administration. You know, this has a potential to undermine the principles of democracy. If you don't believe that what is being done is for the right cause or is even true, then you start to challenge the very government itself. Is this what we start to see to happen in the US? In small amounts, there were some pro-German elements here. And when some German spies actually landed, four landed in around New York, four in Florida, they were together in Cincinnati where they were then going to start a program of terrorism throughout the United States to destroy morale. And they were quickly caught, put on trial, six were executed and buried in this plot outside of Washington. Well, it was a little over 10 years ago that that plot was found. There was a marker there, placed there by the American, I forgot the name of it, the White People's Party or something, and they put flowers and candles on it. And so this is an ancient history. That's something, you know, we think of the war, the Second World War, as something that happened way back then. And of course, in Europe, it feels so real in so many places. It's hard to turn a corner in some areas. But in the United States, it's seen as... This glorious moment in which we were all united behind this common cause, but underneath that was a great deal of division. There was certainly anger toward the Japanese and that immediate response that we're going to do something to revenge Pearl Harbor. There had been some elements, certainly among American businessmen, of support and kind of admiration for Hitler early on that I spell out in the book. But... By the spring of 1942, it's obvious who our enemies are. Roosevelt does a good job of spilling that out and what they are about, which is not just the conquest of land. It's about something very different that would turn us back hundreds and hundreds of years, back into the Dark Ages. And so those elements, to get back to your question of rumor, of false information, of the things that people are saying to each other, uh, certainly is damaging. The question is, what do you do about it? And what the Office of War Information, what a number of newspapers thought was, what we'll do is get out in front of it. We'll put stories in every Sunday paper that'll say, here's what you're hearing, well, here's the truth of it. And they found out early on that more likely spread the rumor than tamped it down. And that their studies were showing that people who were more socially connected, they started using these terms in the 40s, that if you were socially connected, if you had a network I remember they used the word network, and I thought, is this 1942 or 2019? You're more likely to spread these rumors. The more educated you are, the more you are able to rationalize these things. And so it was like a kind of a topsy-turvy understanding. It would be easy. Let me put it this way. What we learned was that it's not about ignorance. Ignorance is if you learn that touching that stove will burn your finger, you won't do it again. That's fine. That's easy. But it's about belief. And when I believe, I don't care what you tell me as far as the evidence or the knowledge, I still believe it. And that is more powerful than anything to try and overcome. As we move through 1942, did things start to get better as, you know, a second front opens, as it looks like, you know, the Americans getting more and more involved in the war, as the best and brightest, the young men of the United States are sent out to war, do people start getting behind the war effort? There were certainly behind the war effort, absolutely. 
whether they're sending their sons or you know a few hundred thousand women to serve in the wax or if they're going to join you know a war industry of one kind or another i mean unemployment reached a little over two percent by the end of the year there was almost a job for everyone if they wanted it but it would take other ways like rationing which it didn't take long to see that rationing was highly unpopular most of all gas rationing and i have to tell my students gas rationing wasn't about gas it was about rubber and so if you had less gas in your tank, you would use less rubber. And rubber was the biggest scientific crisis of 1942 from the United States. That might have been one of the biggest scientific problems of the war came in. How do we produce synthetic rubber? Because without that, we're not going to win the war. There can't be an arsenal of democracy. And you see within the Roosevelt administration, certainly in his papers, that rubber was on the minds of every single person within the White House, within the military, about how to get it and how to make it soon. So people are feeling better, certainly, by the summer. With Midway, the war in the Pacific has finally started to turn. By November, North Africa has been invaded. But that's easy to say now. It's like saying with COVID, well, we got the vaccine, so there's no problem. But still, if Stalingrad falls, it changes the dynamic of everything. If the North Africa invasion is pushed back, what's plan B? I mean, because military leaders here in the United States have kept saying, why don't we just go ahead and attack France? Why don't we open up that second front? Why do this soft underbelly? Well, one of the things that historians get to do every now and then is ask, wonder what would have happened if North Africa turns out to be, you know, a defeat of some kind or a stalemate. We don't get that toehold into the Mediterranean. What's the next step? And then... Most of my book is about what's happening inside the United States. We tend to think of our politics today as broken, as dysfunctional. Why can't we go back to the way it was? Well, the same month that we launched that attack in North Africa, the United States Senate comes to a standstill over a filibuster about black voting rights. And you can see a number of members of our Senate and a number of their white supporters saying there are some things that are more important than winning this war. And one of them is keeping racial segregation and Jim Crow alive and well in the United States. And you want to talk about division in the United States and some of the legacies after the war as well. I mean, we had Shamarams on the podcast talking about the racist terror lynchings of those returning to the South, African-Americans who were seen to be above their station for serving in the US military and to instill that fear, that terror to bring them back down to where they should be. I mean, it's a terrible scar on the American history of the war, isn't it? You never know once you get into doing historical research where it will lead you. And I remember going through the NAACP papers and reading this story about a woman named Norma Green. She was a nurse within the United States Army. She had volunteered to serve in Europe to help when the attack came to serve soldiers who had been wounded, okay? And she went to go shopping before she left in, of all places, Montgomery, Alabama, where some of your listeners may know Rosa Parks got on a bus in 1955. Well, Norma Green got on a bus in 1942 and was beaten up by the local police, and she was charged with disorderly conduct. And I remember thinking, how could this happen? Here's this woman with an American military uniform on, which was probably a trigger in some ways of how dare you wear a uniform like that on this bus. That probably even made things worse in some ways. And so the number of lynchings, which sometimes happened to young boys, 12, 13, 14 years old. One of the worst happened on January 20th in Sykeston, Missouri. 
And coincidentally, or maybe not, that was the same day that the Wannsee Conference occurred outside Berlin to establish the final solution. Well, they burned an African-American alive in Sykeston, Missouri on that day. And so you can see why democracy was in short supply and really didn't exist for the number of Americans who were asked to give the full measure. But our American military was still segregated. Our blood supplies were still segregated. And when you see what people will say, of all the things I read about in 42, and I've been almost a decade on this book, there's this American senator named Theodore Bilbo from Mississippi who, you know, if there's a Hall of Fame of art and racists in the United States, Theodore Bilbo's statue is in that Hall of Fame. And he led this filibuster to make certain that the poll tax would be, still be in place to keep blacks from voting. And when he was successful in winning that poll tax, he said, and I quote, as close as I can remember, that I've done as much for the American way as the boys dying on Guadalcanal. He actually said that. And so there were some heroic moments of this book. You know, for a historian, if you reach a moment where you can let the sources just kind of take over and tell the story, and you get out of the way, you know, or when you're teaching something, you just show some things, and you can just kind of get out of the way and let the audience interact with it. There were some heroic moments of this book. There were some moments where you could see people coming together in ways that they wouldn't have otherwise to do the impossible. And then there were some moments that were just downright appalling, that were there all along. They were there before 1942. And as you know, they would be there after 1942. And for some of those returning soldiers, the lesson was, don't think things have changed. And that's why... I'm getting well past 42. I'm sure that's what your other podcast was about. But yeah, that's certainly the case. Well, I think that's what your book does so well, actually, Tracy, is it shows the complex and contradictory elements of the United States. And I think 1942 sums that up as well. Tell us, how does this year end? Bring us through to November and December. Well, November is really kind of the climax. It's not just the month in which we see that offense take place in uh, North Africa. It's almost a year, really. I mean, take it from early December to early November. It's 11 months before we see that offensive action take place. But it's also a month of which we have a major election. It's not a presidential election, but it's our off-year elections. We elect all the members of the House, the third Senate, number of governors. And there were rumors that the election won't even take place, that Roosevelt will cancel them. Of course, the elections did take place. But it kind of set a notion that Roosevelt's popularity was waning, that, that people were frustrated. They were frustrated with Washington. They're frustrated with their local communities. They were ready to throw the bums out. And Roosevelt's majority in the House came to just a hair. I mean, it was just like the, all it would take would be seven Democratic members of the House to turn any legislation around. But Polls are starting to show not only do we feel a little better, not that victory's right around the corner. We know that 1943 is going to be a brutal, bloody year, and it's nothing quite like 44. But Americans are starting to finally think about what the world might look like if we win this war. And we know one thing, we don't want to go back to the Great Depression. So how can we stop that? And public polls show that three-quarters of Americans want some kind of government jobs to kick in in case unemployment falls below a certain level. In the same month, and I did some work at the London School of Economics looking at beverages papers, you know, the same month that that report came out, 
In the United States, we're talking about, should we not have universal health care? We didn't call it that at the time, but health care for everyone who needs it. And of all the things, and when I talk to groups about this, there are sometimes gasps. One of the things Roosevelt was absolutely adamant about, even after the election, even after his popularity was waning, is that we ought to have a maximum amount that someone can make in a given year. And after taxes, he had said it ought to be $25,000. And so after that, everything you make would be taxed 100%. It would be confiscated for the war effort. That way, there wouldn't be the stories of munitions makers making millions off the war or profiting off of what's happening in Europe. And so there are discussions in various pockets and the beverage report is popular in a lot of places throughout the United States. Maybe not in Congress, but we're seeing what is possible and what the war might look like. And even some business magazines like Fortune would say that what we need is a new kind of democratic capitalism in which we provide for everyone. And here in the United States, James, we've had two rounds in which people have received free government money over the last year. And there's not like been a, a blink in anyone's eye that theoretically that's something that you know, five or six years ago would have been seen as something beyond socialism, but now it's seen that, well, we gotta help people in these kinds of moments. And so what a crisis does is not just show you some of the underlying fault lines of a society, but it also shows you the possibilities, the opportunities that, you know, your country took advantage of in starting a national health service. We did not. And we were having various discussions, not just among, you know, people in coffee houses, but all over the country. We don't want to go back to the Great Depression. We want to make sure people have a life of dignity and a place to work. But we also want to make sure that there's not too much disparity between the rich and the poor. In a poll taken in December, a third of Americans said that there ought to be a cap on how much someone can make. Can you imagine what the numbers would be if we went around and said, should there be a limit on how much money someone should make? I mean, I can't imagine it. It almost seems to go against the idea of the American dream, or at least how the American dream is represented today. I saw a figure in the UK recently that our billionaires have increased their wealth by 21%. And it's just crazy to think, isn't it? But you're right. Out of a crisis also come these glimmers of interesting hope, or at least new ideas. And you know, it's, it's crazy to think that the vaccine is free in the United States. And so where do you draw the line? there between offering free healthcare for a vaccine, cancer treatment not worthy of being free. I mean, these are the debates that are going to have to happen in the next two, three, four, five years. And I'm going to be fascinated at how it all turns out. I couldn't agree with you more. I went to a place where there were mass vaccinations. I'm sure there were a lot of anti-government people there getting their free vaccines and happy to do so. And so, yeah, these moments allow us to kind of retool and rethink some things in ways that we probably would not have been given permission to do so not too long ago. Well, Tracy, thank you so much for taking us through 1942 and so much more. Tell us, where can we buy the book? It's available on Amazon in most places, and I know it's available in the UK. It's called The Year of Peril, which came from a series of paintings, these apocalyptic images of what war could actually bring to people. And it was a labor of love. But, you know, when I sent this book off, James, I remember thinking, is anyone going to identify with a society in crisis in which stores are saying, don't buy too much? And I sent it off in January of 2020. It comes out in May and the pandemic is hit. And I'm ready for it now not to be so relevant, quite frankly. It's been a long year. 
I completely agree, but it's definitely one hell of a read, and I recommend it. It's 1942, A Year of Peril, published by Yale University Press, yeah? Yes. Perfect. Tracy, thank you so much. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. Thank you very much for having me, and take care. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.